0: We are living in a tough day and age to be a Christian. Spiritually speaking, we have to be tough. In the 21st century, if there's ever been a day where we need tough Christians, it's now. We need some people of God who don't cower and who encounter problems, yes, but they take those problems and they say, all right, by God's grace, I am going to do right. right. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to the book of Nehemiah one more time. We are in the last chapter of this glorious book. Let's go to chapter 13. And we are going to look at some things today as we have for these past weeks and studied it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we're we're going to find uh, what every Christian needs, especially in these last days. We need a tender heart and we need a tough hide. (laughs) How true that is. Do you have a tender heart? I hope so. But do you have a tough hide? You say, well, I'm not sure. Well, Nehemiah had both. He had his gritty side, if you will. And we're going to see that today as we focus on this man. He kind of finishes up where he started. Actually, we saw him start by having a tender heart and a burden for his people and a desire to see the city wall once again rebuilt around the ancient city of Jerusalem and and Jewish worship once again reestablished. He wept. He prayed that God would enable him to do that because he was the king's cupbearer. He had a tender heart. He went back. He got the job done. It kind of just mingles in with Ezra and others. And you don't hear a whole lot about him as far as being a dominant figure for for several chapters. But he rises once again to the surface in this chapter as the dominant figure. And this is his journal. Remember that. The book of Nehemiah is his diary. He's writing what's going on. He's writing and talking about what's in his heart. And we can read it many centuries later. We pick it up in Nehemiah 13 and verse number 4. It says, And before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offering, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and to the singers and the porters, and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was I not at Jerusalem. For in the two and uh, thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king. And after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem, and I understood of all the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the court of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth (laughs) all the household stuff of Tobiah, out of the chamber. So he's cleaning house here, but he's not done. In verse 10, And I perceived that the portion of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil unto the treasuries. So he shored things up there again. But he's not done. In verse 15, "...in those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and laden asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem." Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? So he finds another mess. He's got a clean house there and shore that up. Well, in verse number 22, he says, And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. And then we see inside his heart as he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. Now, we're going to be taking a look today at something that can happen in any Christian's life. When things kind of slide, when we get lethargic and apathetic and indifferent, and suddenly we don't recognize what's going on, what happens is we let things slip. And there were things slipping all over Jerusalem there. And so we're going to be talking about that, letting things slip and what we need to do about it. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask you to please now bless this time and your word as we look at these examples of people just like us who lived long ago. They had the same nature that we have, and that is they let things slip. They begin to compromise. And one inch at a time, they were giving up ground that belonged to you. And Father, they had to reshore it back up again. Help us to look within these examples and today arrive at the conclusion of of our own lives and hearts and what we're going to shore up in those things that are slipping. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you've been to the historical museum out in West Fargo, you've seen covered wagons and old pioneer pilgrim stuff out there. There was a time in our history here in this area when the pioneers came in, and pretty much wherever the railroad tracks crossed a river, a town would spring up. And that's how Fargo and the uh, Moorhead FM area got its beginning. And I'm telling you, there were some people that were living pretty good out east who gave it all up to come out this way and claim some land and settle in the outlying areas. And, and they'd get here in the fall and, and have to get through the winter, some of them by living under their covered wagon the first winter others would get a, a sod hut together but they didn't have glass barely could slam a door together and they lived in this one room with a large family in a musty sod hut with no daylight coming in I mean imagine there were some people who really lost it during those trying days and those conditions and and we talk about tough times like that but folks we are living in tough times though we have air conditioning and we have cars and we have heat and we have uh, electric this and uh, and gas powered that but We are living in a tough day and age to be a Christian. It's tough in a different way. Spiritually speaking, we have to be tough. In the 21st century, if there's ever been a day where we need tough Christians, it's now. And in the spiritual realm, there's no room for wimps. We need some people of God who don't cower and who encounter problems, yes, but they take those problems by the nap of the neck and they say, all right, by God's grace, I am going to do right. Now, Nehemiah... Faced tough times. He faced a number of problems. We've seen him encounter those problems. We've seen enemies and adversaries. And we've seen all this opposition coming down on him. And now, the problem is within. He's got his own people, the Jewish, the Hebrew people, who knew better, compromising in all these areas. And that's human nature. The second law of thermodynamics states... That anything left to itself tends to greater randomness and confusion. Which is just a fancy way of saying, if you let anything go, it's going to go downhill. I mean, the tendency is for it to slide in a downward direction. And we have to continually keep it up. I don't care if it's this building. I don't care if it's the shingles on your roof. I don't care if it's your automobile. If you just let it go, it's going to go downhill. And so it is with human nature. We tend to go downhill Unless we are propped up and shored up. That's why we come to the house of God like this throughout the week. Because we need that. The Jewish people needed that. Now, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. And as I mentioned a moment ago, he got special permission to go back and rebuild the city walls. And he's apparently there for a long time, maybe about 12 years, best I can figure. But he has to go back to Artaxerxes. He's got to report back in. And so he goes back to Babylon and he's gone for a while. We don't know how long, but guess what? While he's gone, things slip. The old cliche, while the cat's away, you know. The mice will play, and they're playing like crazy back there in Jerusalem. They are compromising on every front. And so we find out that they did something that we tend to do in this century. And that's why in Romans fifteen four it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. These things are put in the Bible, not for us to just blow off and read and go, okay, that's a good story. No, it's for us to look at and say, all right, that's just like us today. God put those things in the Bible so that we can make an application at this time in history. We are prone to let things slip. And as we talk about that matter, how did they let things slip? Well, first of all, there was what I call this collaborating with the sinister. They were collaborating with the sinister. Notice in verse 1 here, it says, On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonites and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Now, who are the Ammonites and the Moabites? Well, they were the descendants of Lot, unfortunately, through an incestuous relationship he had with his daughter, and so they're not Jews, and they were really wicked people. But they were not to mingle with the Jewish people for another reason. In verse 2, it says, Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, that is, when Moses was leading them into the promised land, but they hired Balaam. He was a Moabite, uh, or a half-Jew, if you will, or part-Jew, a high-breed. He hired Balaam against them that he should curse them, howbeit our God cur- turned the curse into a blessing. And so, God has something against the Ammonites and the Moabites. And he opens this chapter. Nehemiah puts that in his journal. Why? In verse 3, it says, Now it came to pass when they heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. In other words, they said, You're a Moabitess, you're an Ammonitess, and and you need to get out of here, because you're going to corrupt our lineage here. And they would have. And so, they were reading the Bible. They learned that this was going on. But it had gone further than that. In verse 4, It says, and before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied to Tobiah. Get the picture here. This priest was somehow allied or friends with Tobiah. Now, who was Tobiah? Does that name ring a bell? Well, he was from the country of Moab, so he was part of this group that didn't belong around God's people. But worse than that, years earlier... He had given the Jews fits. In Nehemiah 4 and verse 3, it says, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, Sanballat, and he, Tobiah, said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. He's mocking the Jews while they're building that wall. He's also trying to raise up enemies to even kill Nehemiah. This was a wicked guy. This was an evil, sinister man. But worse yet, here's Eliashib in verse 4, a priest, who has oversight of the chamber of the house of God, allied with this guy. Allied with Tobiah. Now, was Eliashib naive? I don't think so. But he was allied with the sinister, whatever the reason being. You know, it's sad, but I see in the, the modern day churches, those who are part of a church like this Allied with those who are enemies of this church. Now, I'm not talking about the unsaved. I mean, you work with them, you live by them. But I'm talking about people who have tried to do evil to churches like this over the years. And even come from within and up the ranks and cause problems. And now are on the outside. But people on the inside are still like Eliashib, allied with them. And buddy-buddy and com- camaraderie with them. And they're on the wrong side. They're aligned with the wrong people. We've got to be careful of that. That displeases the Lord. Tobiah here is a picture of, of somebody who is a thorn in the side of God's work. And in our day, it would be God's church. There are those who are actually a thorn in the side of churches. Good New Testament churches like this. And the Bible tells us to separate from them and have no fellowship with them and even mark them in Romans 6. And they are people who are trying to thwart the work of God. So make sure you're on the right side. <laughs> That's so important. And you would think it's common sense, but it's not always that way. And it hasn't always been that way, even in Bible times. I find that Moses had an enemy by the name of Korah. And I mean a wicked enemy. He rose up against Moses and he took a bunch of people with him. And God saw this and it displeased the Lord. And he caused this earthquake and he took Korah and his compadres down with him. But what's, what's more amazing to me is the next day. The Bible says there's a large group of people who chide with Moses and say, you've killed the people of God. It's like, hello, Moses didn't dig that hole and drop those people in there. It was God who caused that earthquake because those people were wicked. Don't you get it? They were still attacking Moses and and, and aligning themselves with the wrong side. Folks, do you have discernment? Do I have discernment? Do we have enough spiritual perception to know those who are on God's side and those who are attacking the church of God that Jesus loved and bled and died for? Well, we find out here that this Eliashib, a priest who should have known better, is allied with Tobiah, this guy who was wicked and who was trying to stop the work of God. Well, notice in verse 5, it says, "...and he, that is Eliashib, had prepared for Tobiah a great chamber." Where aforetime they laid the meat offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priests. Here's what it's saying there were rooms aligned with the temple that were for certain things, kind of chambers. Well, what had happened here is the Jewish people had stopped bringing in the tithes, which you'll see in just a moment, and all this other stuff. And so Eliashib, a priest, said to his buddy Tobiah, I'll just make one of those into an apartment for you. And that's what he did. So he took something that was to be used for the office of the priest and the temple, and now he's got this heathen guy living in there and kind of enjoying this. In verse 6, it wasn't Nehemiah's fault. Notice he He puts parenthetically, he says, But in all the time, all this time, was I not at Jerusalem? For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king. And after certain days obtained I leave of the king. So when all this is going on, Nehemiah is seven, eight hundred miles away, back there in Babylon, and while the cat's away, the mice are playing, and things are just slipping all over the place here. Well, in verse seven. He says, And I came to Jerusalem, and I understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. I love it. I mean he deals with it and he deals with it severely. He comes back from Babylon, he sees what's going on, he's going, What? You gotta be kidding me. He doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to pray about it. He goes in there and he, he chucks all that stuff out of there. <laughs> Can you imagine when Tobiah came home that night from work? And said, Whoa, all his stuff is out there in the front lawn and the, the locks changed on the door and uh, he's homeless for the moment here. I love it. Nehemiah got busy because this was sinister and this was evil and somebody was collaborating with it. Imagine that. Tobiah in the temple. You know, we have a missionary apartment in this building in the West Wing, for, for a servants of God who are coming through. Tobiah in the temple would be like us housing Hugh Hefner in the missionary apartment. Could you imagine us doing that? Or, or putting some Satanists in the, the, the missionary apartment. Well, you know, they've got to have a place over their head too. No. Here's Nehemiah, and he hears about it, and he said, get this junk out of here. He doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to pray about it. He just threw it out. I love verse 9. He says, and I commanded, And they cleanse the chambers. I mean, he, he says, get the pressure washer in here, fella. Get everything that even smells of Tobiah out of this thing. They hose it down. They 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 cleanse the temple. And notice in verse number 9, and hither brought I again the vessels of God, the house of God, with the meat offering and the, the frankincense. You know, here's a man who is determined not to allow the profane to corrupt the sacred. Boy, there's quite a thought there. Don't allow the profane the Tobias, to corrupt the sacred, the temple of God. Now, there's another temple of God, and it's this church, but there's another one besides that, and it's you if you're a born-again Christian. It's us. We are the temple of God. There's something about defiling the temple of God that really irks God. In fact, it overcame Nehemiah so, so much so he got active and he kicked all this stuff out. God wants all of us. Bottom line is, he's not about to share us with the sinister, with the defiled, with the ungodly. In fact, in James 4 and verse 5, it says, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? You ever read that and said, what's that talking about? Well, it's talking about a born-again Christian who's now alive spiritually because he has the Spirit of God living inside of him, and that Spirit of God living inside of us wants all of us. The Bible says our God is a jealous God. He's not about to share anything with the devil that belongs to him, and if you're saved, you belong to him, and the Spirit that dwelleth within us lusteth to envy. In other words, he wants all of us, and Nehemiah understood that. Now, was Nehemiah over the top with doing this? I mean, he came in, he got mad, he, he pitched all that stuff there. I don't think so. Not if you understand the Bible. In 2 Timothy 4 2, it says, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. There is a time to rebuke. Nehemiah is doing it. There is a time to reprove. Nehemiah is doing it because wrong was being tolerated. You know, we can't always look the other way, folks. We can't always be everybody's friend. And we see the side of God here. And you've got to love the balance of God. You know, if you study the Bible, yes, there's a time for a soft answer. We read in Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And you would say, well, okay, then we ought to just have this soft approach to everything. Well... If you study the Bible, you find that's not true. Now, I prefer a soft answer. I would, I would prefer no controversy. But I'm telling you, there are times when God gets stirred. And there are times when a Christian gets stirred because we have God living inside of us. There are times when a preacher gets stirred because he, he knows God has some feelings about some things and they begin to come out in the preacher. You say, boy, he, he never acted like that before. But God has some feelings. And God is against some things. And we need to discern when, when we need to take that stand against things and reprove and rebuke and exhort. The Bible says something interesting in Proverbs 26.4. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest so also be like unto him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Have you ever read those two verses and you said, hey, they contradict each other. One says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. The next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. If you think about it, it's talking about exactly what I'm talking about here. There's a time for a soft answer. There's a time for a rebuke. And there have been times when I have uh, patted somebody on the back, and there have been times I've kicked them in the pants. And that's, his, that's what this is talking about. Answer not a fool according to his folly. In other words, don't get on his level. I mean, I mean, just give him one of those looks where, you know, you don't get it. You don't know that you don't know. Don't even go there. Answer not a fool according to his folly. It's beneath you. But then there are times when you need to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Lest he leave all puffed up thinking he's right. A legend in his own mind who has all the answers. The whole world's wrong and he's right. You know, there have been times I've encountered people like that and the, the Spirit of God has said, rebuke him. Rebuke him. And they, they may have been expecting that soft answer and that pat on the back and they left with a kick in the pants because they were thinking they're right and it would have hurt them to leave thinking they're right. And so you need to point out when they're wrong. And God will tell us when. And we learn that after a while. It's called discernment. But there are some things we are not to put up with. Now, this is the day and age of toleration. You notice that? That's the big buzzword today. Toleration. Like we're supposed to tolerate everything. We're supposed to put up with everything. No, we're not supposed to tolerate everything. We're not supposed to put up with everything. Nehemiah didn't put up with it. There is a time when wrong is being tolerated and it shouldn't be. We see it in our nation today and we need to do something about it. You know, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 8.11, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. In other words, when we let that stuff slide, when we don't say something, we don't take a stand, when our nation doesn't pass judgment upon wickedness and evil, and it's tolerated, the nation or the people or the society just keeps getting more and more wicked. And God knows that. We can't look the other way. We can't wink at some things. There is a time for grace. There is a time for mercy. I'm not saying that. And I think those who know me know that I tend to err on the side of, of mercy more than justice. But there is a time For justice, there are some things we can't tolerate and there are some things that need to be repented of. And that's really the key word. Repent of it. And then we extend restoration. We say, okay, now we can join hands here. But it's really a waste of time until there's a change of heart in the the sinister or the sinner and and, uh, they will not repent. And in fact, we cannot tolerate their lack of repentance. There are some things that we can't tolerate like false doctrine. And in Titus 1.13, it says, Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. There are many out there who are promoting false doctrine. And uh, that's sending people to hell, folks. And, and eternity is forever. And so we are to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. We can't tolerate error. Now, I know that's hard to, you know, to rebuke. And I know if you're like me, you want to be everybody's friend. And there are some who really have a weakness in this area. I mean, they're, they're, they're wishy-washy and they compromise and they, they do wrong knowing better because they're trying to be everybody's friend. Well, not Nehemiah. He, he understood he couldn't be everybody's friend. And he saw an evil association. He saw somebody collaborating with a very sinister person. And he said, this is wrong. And by the way, as we are at this time of the year when, when many of you are, are, are getting connected with school and other things like, like that, let me warn you to be careful about your associations. Because if, as somebody said, you run with skunks, you're going to end up smelling like one. And they can drag you down. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Be not deceived. Evil communications or associations corrupt good manners. You know, there was a guy in the Bible by the name of Amnon who was trying to fight off a bad lust problem, but he had a wicked friend by the name of Jonadab who talked him into committing rape with this, this gal, and it wrecked his life, and he lost his life. I'm telling you, watch those associations. Unholy alliances have wrecked a number of people. So there was compromise going on. There was something slipping, and it was basically collaborating with the sinister. But secondly, there was cheating with the sovereign. There were some people who were cheating God. Notice this in verse number 10 as we pick it up. Nehemiah says, And I perceived that the portion of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled one to his field. In other words, they're not ministering there in the temple the way they should have been because, well, they were hungry. Why? Because they were not getting supported. Why? Because the Jews had stopped tithing. So now the Levites had to go out and farm and and, uh, get jobs and everyone had returned to his field basically because they had stopped tithing as a nation. Keep in mind, Nehemiah wasn't gone that long. But while he was gone, this had slipped. The people were robbing God. In Malachi 3 and verse 8, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. Now this is God talking. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? God says, "In tithes. And offerings, tithe is 10%. And God says, you are robbing me if you don't give me that 10%. It was going on there. Now, notice in verse 10, Nehemiah in his journal says, And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. Notice he's on his toes. He perceived. That's discernment. He's got this periscope kind of vision. Evidently, everyone had gotten used to just living in, in this condition. And, and Nehemiah comes back to town and he starts seeing stuff all over the place. He's on his toes. He's on the ball. He's observant. And, you know, we live in a day and age when people are in a trance. And even Christians in a daze, you just get used to it. You just kind of, you, you're just going through it all the time. And we need to learn to look and we need to listen. That was Nehemiah. He's on top of everything. The rest of the crowd there, the rest of the Jews were used to it. I was out skiing this last summer uh, with a fellow, and we went to this little lake. He's a guy in the church. And uh, we were skiing on this little lake, and it's, it's not very big, and there's a, a cow pasture right beside it. And when we got to that portion of the lake, uh, it reeked. I mean, all you could smell was cows. I mean, and, and the kids were in the boat and everything, and we were going, oh, that's horrible. We were gagging and all that. And anyway, we skied up and down that lake a few times and just hung out there for a couple of hours. And you know, somebody commented by the end of the night, you know, I don't even notice that smell anymore. Isn't that human nature? I mean, you just learn to live with it. You get used to it. And it's, it's really amazing to me how quickly this happens. Notice in, in Hebrews 10, keep, or uh, in Nehemiah 10, I should say, keep your place here in chapter 13, but turn back a couple of pages to me- Nehemiah chapter 10, Notice how quickly this happened. Now, this is a chapter where they had been reading and praying and preaching and and got together and signed this document. Notice all these signatures for all these verses. I mean, just many, many people signing this document, pledging to do some things. What had they pledged to do? Well, look in verse 32. Nehemiah 10.32 Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the corn or the showbread and for the continual meat offering and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths of the new moons, for the set feasts, for the holy things and for the sin offering to make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Notice they got together and they pledged that we will tithe to support the temple. Well, back in chapter 13 again. Notice how quickly that went by the wayside. A few years. In verse 10, Nehemiah says, And I perceived that the portion of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. In other words, they made some big vows a few chapters earlier, a few years earlier. Big, big talk. And that's really all it was. Well, this this is what we're going to do and so on. I promise. I I put it on the dotted line. That's human nature, isn't it? We can talk big. We can pledge. We can say, I promise. Well, notice in verse number 11, Nehemiah says, Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, I like this, and set them in their place. He contended with them. Actually, the Hebrew word there, it it, it denotes something aggressive or noisy. I mean, there's an argument here. And the issue at hand is they had neglected the Levites. They were not supporting the ministers, and those guys were now out getting jobs. Now, there's a principle that's established way back in the Old Testament and carried through the New Testament. It's found in 1 Corinthians 9.13 where Paul says, "...do you not know that they which minister about holy things live with the things of the temple, and they which wait on the altar are partakers of the altar?" Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live with the gospel. And it's talking about the tithes coming into the storehouse, the temple in the Old Testament, the New Testament church in the New Testament, and the tithes partially being used to house, of course, but also to support the spiritual leaders, the the men of God. You know, when I came to Fargo... Nearly 25 years ago, it wasn't of the intention to start something that would support me. <laughs> Wouldn't that be carnal? Well, I'm going to start something and maybe someday it will support me. That was the furthest thing from my mind. In fact, I, had a, I got a part-time job for a couple of years there. I was, I was happy to do that. Some of my friends are still doing that who are in the ministry. But today, this church has a, a good-sized staff that it supports. And you say, where do you get that in the Bible? Right here. And all over the Bible. It says, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. They weren't doing that in the days of Nehemiah. They were neglecting the spiritual leaders. Now, notice in verse number 11, Nehemiah says, Then I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil unto the treasury. Well, then he set some men over the treasury there in verse number 13 who were faithful men, he says here, but the giving had stopped and Nehemiah says, I contended with them in verse 11. Now, do you like contention? I hate contention. I've never liked contention. But there are some who get into it. And he says, I contended with them. The Hebrew word is reeb. He raised his voice He didn't have to pray about it. He saw something going on that violated God's truth, and he fixed it. He fixed it. And in verse 13, he made treasures over the treasury, and and this guy did that, and that guy did that. And uh, at the last part of verse 13, and he said, their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Notice verse 14. Then he says, remember me, O my God, concerning this. And wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Remember, this is his journal. And so he talks about cleaning house. And then he says, Lord, help me do this. It wasn't easy for him. And with a heavy heart, he said, remember this. He fixed it. And I love the many sides of the man of God here. I mean, he can pat on the back. uh, He can kick in the pants. uh, He can administrate. But he can pray as well. Now, some would say, you know, he should have just prayed about it and let God take care of it. And there are people like that. Well, just pray about it. Well, that's not scriptural. Actually, the Bible tells us in James 2 and verse 20, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? There is a time to pray. Don't get me wrong. But there is a time to act. And faith without works is dead. There have been times in the history of this church where there there are folks without that are trying to hurt the church. That's one thing. But when folks from within rise up, and Paul said in Acts 20, you'll always have that. And, and the devil's always busy, when there have been folks from the inside that have risen up and tried to mess people up, it's been time for them to go, and I haven't just tried to pray about it, I've taken action. James says, but wilt thou not know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? That word vain there means worthless. I mean, there's a time when we can say, well, I'll just uh, leave it all up to God, and it's worthless. And prayer can be a cop-out. It really can. It can be a guilt remover. Folks, there's a time to act. And we find Nehemiah acting here. You know, when uh, God told the Jewish people to conquer Jericho, but not to take anything, there was a fellow by the name of Achan who took something. He coveted, he lusted, he took it, he stole it, he went back to his tent, he hid it. And in the next battle, the Jews got whipped. And there was something wrong. God wasn't blessing them anymore. And Joshua, he falls on his... His face, oh God, you said you'd bring us into the land of, uh, the promised land, and you'd take care of us, and wah, 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 and you're not doing it, and all that kind of thing. And we find out in Joshua 7, 10, the Lord said unto Joshua, get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus on thy face? Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed. Here's Joshua praying, and God says, get up, Joshua, you need to take care of the sin in the camp. And they did. They got Achan out of the camp. There are some things, and and, and you and I say, well, I'll pray about that. You really don't need to pray about it. Well, I'll pray about witnessing. You don't need to pray about witnessing. We're commanded to witness. You say, well, I'll I'll pray about attending church. No, we're commanded to attend church. Well, I'll pray about getting baptized. You don't have to pray about getting baptized. You say, well, I'll pray about uh, tithing. You don't have to pray about tithing. There are some things that you don't have to pray about. We are told to do it. And it doesn't matter. Somebody would say, well, tithing's not found in the New Testament, pastor. Oh, yes, it is. It's found all over the New Testament. In fact, in, in Matthew 23, Jesus explicitly says, don't neglect the tithe. And yet there are Christians who are cheating the sovereign. They are robbing God or giving God the leftovers, eating the apple and giving God the core. And basically, when we're told to bring the first fruits unto God, there are many who aren't. And really, folks, it's the least we can do. It really is the least we can do. Because James also said in James 1.17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. That's God. It's simply saying everything we have we owe to God. The very least that we can do is give the tenth back to Him. And so there were some who were neglecting giving to the house of God and, and that's nothing new. We see it today. We saw it back in the days of Nehemiah. Are you cheating with the sovereign? That's a good question. Are you slipping in that area? We saw, first of all, about collaborating with the sinister, cheating with the sovereign. But thirdly, there was this compromising with the Sabbath that was going on. Now, the Sabbath has never been Sunday. I just want to say that up front. Sunday is called the Lord's Day in the Bible. The Sabbath is Saturday. The Lord's Day is the first day of the week. It's Sunday. And in Mark 16, 9, it says, now, when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week. We know that Christ rose from the dead on Sunday morning. Now, there are some who debate what day a church should meet on. Well, in Bible days, they met on every day. But today, we meet on Sunday, the first day of the week. And you say, why is that, pastor? Well, because that's what they did back in Bible times. In Acts 20 and in verse 7, it says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. Notice they're having a church service there. No question about it. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 16 too, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. Talking about tithing there. Coming to church and leaving the tithe. But in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation had a special covenant with God that was just between them and God to worship on Saturday. And that was to commemorate the creation, the day of rest, the seventh day. God rested the seventh day, not because He was tired, but because He was trying to establish something with His people. And the Jews were duty-bound to keep that Sabbath. But, notice in Nehemiah 13 and in verse 15, Nehemiah says, in those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses and also uh, wine, grapes and figs and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals, that is food. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein. Now These were heathen, which brought fish from the Mediterranean there where where, uh, Syria was and all manner of ware And sold on the Sabbath day under the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. It's incredible here. They had made a covenant with God not that far uh, earlier on, just a few chapters back, not to do this. We read in Nehemiah 10, 29. Again, that paper they signed. They entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law. And if the people of the land bring where or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. Notice the very thing they had promised to, to, to not do, they're doing now. It's like, oops. I mean, the wording's almost identical. They were slipping here. They had dropped the ball. Human nature, folks. We have to all be on guard about this. There are probably some folks right here, and and there are things that come to your mind right now. You're saved, you love the Lord, you know better, but these things are slipping. Well, in verse 17, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah. Read, same word again, I contended with them and said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Again, controversy. Now, I don't go looking for it, but it comes, I'd have never chosen the ministry. I'd have never chosen politics. Had I had my druthers, I, I would have wired buildings and invested in property. And never anything as controversial as spiritual ministry. But there are times when we have to confront people. And uh, there's this clash. And controversy is a part of leadership. Notice in verse number 19. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut. So in other words, as it's getting close to Saturday, shut those gates and charge that they should not be open till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants said I at the gates that there should be no burden brought in on the Sabbath day. And so from six o'clock uh, Friday night to six o'clock Saturday night, that's their day, those gates were shut. He commanded it to be done. He took charge. You know, Nehemiah wasn't a wimp. Have you picked up on that? He was not a pushover. He was shoring up stuff all the time because he knows human nature is to go downhill. And that can happen with any of us when it comes to our Bible reading, when it comes to our prayer life, when it comes to our witnessing. We can let those things slip. Well, in verse 20, we pick it up. So all the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. In other words, he shut those gates Friday night at 6, and those people showed up from Syria with their fish from the Mediterranean, and they're, they're hanging around outside waiting for these Jews to come out and buy their stuff from them. In verse 21, Then I, Nehemiah says, testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If you do so again... I will lay hands on you. <laughs> From that time forth came there. No more on the Sabbath day. He said, you, you pull this stunt again. I'm coming out there. I'm going to get rough. Again, he's not a doormat. You know, over the years, there are those who think uh, Christians ought to be doormats and I've encountered them. Or they think churches are a pushover and, and they're, they're easy to take advantage of. And, and we've had things that have come across us, uh, trumped up charges on bills and, and things along those lines that, that uh, tell me that the world thinks, you know, we, we're passive. And we wouldn't challenge anything. No, we have to challenge. Don't forget, Jesus Christ was a lamb. But you know, he's also called a lion in the Bible. And in Revelation 5 and verse 5, it says, behold, the lion... Of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed. You want to read a chapter about Christ sometime. That will show you another side of him. Go over to Matthew chapter 23. Not now. But here's just one verse. Verse 33. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says. Ye serpents. Ye generation of vipers. That's snakes. How can you escape the damnation of hell? He rips into him in that chapter. And he says. You're going to hell. And you're taking others with you. Well, Nehemiah said, you guys out there, you pull this stunt again, I'm coming out there and I'm getting rough. And he would have gotten rough. You say, well, you shouldn't use a harsh language like that. It wouldn't do any good. Oh, it did some good. Look at the last part of verse 21. From that time forth (laughs) came they no more on the Sabbath. There are times, and I'm not saying this should be the rule. It's really the exception. But there are times when we have to say that will not be tolerated. So we see the collaborating with the sinister and the cheating with the sovereign and the compromising with the Sabbath. And the bottom line is, now we talk about finally the confronting with the sacred. What can we learn quickly from this? Well, we find according to Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and on, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to plant and a time to pluck up. A time to break down and a time to Build up A time to rend and a time to sow. And it's really talking about the Christian life being balanced. Not being one-sided. Not being all mercy, but having some justice. Not being all justice, but having some mercy. Even a battery has a positive and a negative pull to it, does it not? But there is a new evangelicalism prevalent in our society today that is all positive. And there are popular preachers who are writing books and making millions that have an all positive message. But it is not scriptural according to the Bible. We're depraved. Bottom line is, we're depraved. And uh, even in the days of Isaiah, they were saying in chapter 30, don't preach anything rough. Preach unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. Get out of that narrow way. In Jeremiah 1 and verse number 10, God says, I have this day, talking to Jeremiah, set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy, and to throw down, to build, and to plant. He gives us four negatives and two positives, and that's really the pattern you find throughout the Bible. Reprove, rebuke, exhort over there in the New Testament. God says there's a place for justice. Nehemiah faced it head on. We've got to face it head on, folks. Really, beginning with ourselves. When it comes to things slipping, we must look within. We must look in the mirror. If we can't confront ourselves and admit it, we're not going to get victory. We can't skirt around it. It's, it's painful as we look within, but Nehemiah dealt with it. And he dealt with it severely, and we need to deal with it severely. Now, I'm sure the people looked at Nehemiah as the governor, and they said, What a crank. Man, I'm not voting for you next time. You grumpy old thing here, and so on and so forth. Lighten up. Well, Nehemiah dealt with it severely. He had to. There are times when we must. Whatever it takes, if there's something in the life that shouldn't be there, whatever it takes for the victory, we have to be willing to do it. I mean, it it might be outrageous. It, it, It might be over the edge. It might mean selling something. It might be doing something, giving up something. It might hurt, but we have to look long range. Nehemiah was the guy who saw the big picture. And he saw where all this would end up here. And so he said, get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of this. But what I like about Nehemiah is he practiced the replacement principle. He knew that when you get rid of something, you have to replace it with something. And the Bible teaches that. Ephesians talks about if you have a lying problem, uh, you know, use your tongue to witness. If you, if you, uh, if you're stealing, use your hands to work so that you might have to give and, and so on and so forth. It's the replacement principle. Because the devil loves a vacuum. You say, I'm listening to some ungodly music. I'm just going to stop listening to all music. No, you won't. The ungodly music will be back unless you replace it with godly music. See what I'm saying? Satan loves a vacuum. And whatever it is that needs to go, when you get rid of it, you've got to replace it with something. God always matches a negative with a positive. He's not a cosmic killjoy who wants to just take everything away from you. He just wants us to have the right stuff. Well, finally, what I like about Nehemiah as he confronts with the sacred and he replaces evil with good, is he always prays. After he cleans house, after he does this, after he does that, he he says, oh God, oh God. Now the point of this is we need to have times when we confront things, confront others, confront ourselves. And really, the, the first way of confrontation with ourselves is salvation. On March 5th, 1981, I was lost. I needed to confront the fact that I was a sinner. I was on the road to hell. My baptism wouldn't save me. My good works would not save me. My church membership would not save me. None of that would save me. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that would save me. I had to be willing to confront my sin, be willing to repent of it, change my mind and attitude about it, and place all my faith in what Jesus did on Calvary's cross to save me. And I was born again that night. A relationship with God actually begins with us confronting ourselves, and our sin. Have you ever done that? You ever had a time in your life when you were born again the Bible way? Now, I trust that most here today have, and I thank God for that. But you know what can happen afterwards. If you're made of the same stuff as I am, you know how easily we can slip. And we see it right here in this chapter firsthand. It's unbelievable, folks. How in such a short time, these big promises they had made, these these improvements that Nehemiah had made earlier, all just go downhill. And they're tolerating it. God help us not to tolerate God help us to recognize it and to repent of it and to shore up that which has slipped. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.